Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hey, you're about to hear a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show from August 31st of 2017. Honey, great news. I got the tickets. Tickets to what? The MLU Championship game. We talked about this. Wait, you paid money to watch that stupid frisbee thing you do? It's not a stupid thing. It's a sport. (laughs) It's not a sport? How can it be a sport if it's something that dogs are good at? (laughs) It's totally a sport. This is the elite version of Ultimate. We're talking Philadelphia Spinners versus the Boston Whitecap, the same matchup where last year Billy Sickles threw a greatest chicken wing and Himalaya Maida laid out for the sickest catch ever. (laughs) I'm going to have Lieutenant Uru run that through the translator so I can hear it in Earth speech. (laughs) It hurts so much when you laugh at something that's really important to me. Jonathan, let me be serious for like a second. You're in a cult. You've gone four nights a week. You're covered with scabs. You've lost all interest in sex and you're eating garbage out of dumpsters. That was just that one time after the match against Ring of Fire. I was exhausted and starving and Chili's was closed. I can't take any more of this. Just go to the one game. I think you'll understand. I'd love to, but... I have tickets to the National Squirt Gun Championships the same day. (laughs) I hate you. (laughs) And now he would have been the greatest ultimate player ever if Tanya Harding hadn't broken his fingers. Colin McEnroe. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not even sure why she broke my fingers. I don't don't know that it was necessarily to ruin my chances at Ultimate Frisbee or as it is called these days, Ultimate. So we are going to talk about the Frisbee. We're going to talk about it as a thing. Uh, We're going to talk about its history. That's going to come a little bit later. We are going to talk not in the kind of attitude of that woman you just heard in the intro, not at all, uh, about Ultimate Frisbee, a game that, in fact, is incredibly physically, aerobically demanding uh, and which aspires to the status of sport. It may have reached the status of sport. That's something that is to be debated and might even be debated here. Um, It is – I think it's fair to say that it is somewhat maligned by some people anyway. Like people like that woman in that intro. So let me tell you who's here. Um, joining us in the studio, I wouldn't have dreamed of doing this show without my friend uh, Dan Haar, a columnist for the Hartford Current and a legend uh, in the world of Connecticut Ultimate. Uh, joining us also in studio is Dan O'Connor, president and CEO of the Frisbee Pie Company. Whence cometh the name uh, of the thing that you play Ultimate Frisbee with, except you don't, as it turns out, play Ultimate Frisbee or Ultimate with something that's actually called a Frisbee. See, it's going to get really complicated. It's already gotten really complicated. Also joining us uh, from studios uh, in, I think, I'm not sure where, uh, from studios in a place to be disclosed later uh, will be David Gessner, the author of Ultimate Glory, Frisbee, Obsession, and My Wild Youth. And later on in the show, because we are not exclusively devoted to Frisbees, uh, although we are slavishly devote, devoted to them. We have lots of Frisbees in the, in the studio right now. Um, we are going to also talk about the fact that the uh, pickleball championships are coming. Upstart <laughs> sport. It's an upstart sport, yeah. But see, these people said that about you, you know, at one time. People said that about you. You should have some kind of 
ecumenical attitude about this because, you know, I mean, you've been there, right? We had a broader purpose in life. We were countercultural. You really are looking down your nose at the pickleball people. That's well, so, know, that I, is so I, I, wrong. Know, I don't know how Already. aerobic, you know, I just don't know enough about <laughs> it, I, you know. <laughs> All right. So that's uh, the voice that you hear is uh, the voice of Dan Har, uh, a longtime um, ultimate Frisbee. Well, are we, what are we going to say? Are we going to say ultimate Frisbee or are we going to say ultimate? Let us start, in my opinion, by saying that the word Frisbee has been, uh, the trademark has been abrogated by whammo, in my opinion. I have never, in 30 years of doing this, of calling it by its generic name, been notified by the company that you have done something wrong. As a journalist, I typically am. If I say Xerox when I mean copier, I actually get a letter from Xerox. Right. Not the case with Frisbee. We play, in my opinion, the generic game of Ultimate Frisbee with a disc that is made by Discraft, right. not Whammo. Yeah, maybe Dan O'Connor can th- shed a little light on that. You actually are an expert on the physical thing that is sometimes called a Frisbee, but is I feel like this is the Knights Who Say Knee or something. This is something that is often called a Frisbee, but is not necessarily by name a Frisbee. So the thing that's played in regulation, competition, ultimate Frisbee is not brand-wise a Frisbee, correct? Well, to Dan's <laughs> point, <laughs> it is called a flying disc. A flying disc. Flying yeah. disc. But, but as you think about it, yeah. the name, as it's derived, is actually from, it's got historical, historical roots from the Frisbee Pie Company, which was from and is in Bridgeport, Connecticut to this day. So the name, as you think about it, that being Frisbee, and a tossing of a Frisbee, this case a Frisbee pie tin, yeah. predated what we know today or what became known as the toy, the Frisbee. Right. So we're going to deal a little bit with that in the second section of the show. But, I mean, the, the important thing to know is that if you uh, are, are witnessing a game of ultimate that is like at some kind of league level, it's actually the thing that they're throwing, the flying disc that they're throwing, is not necessarily made by Whammo. It's not necessarily by brand a Frisbee. Now, we now have to explain. So often, uh, Dan, when I'm – Dan Har, I'm, when I'm – Maybe I'll just go back to calling you Danny like oh, I used you're to. You're going to have to today, yeah. and I'm going to give you a special dispensation. All right. So, Danny, <laughs> often I'm walking around Elizabeth Park, and there are these people doing this, and it really does look like a lot of fun. I'm, and it sort of looks kind of like touch football, but but people are running more constantly. That's about as much of a grasp of as I had of it until I read uh, David Gessner's book. But explain what Ultimate Frisbee actually is. Ultimate Frisbee is a, a, a sport of running and scoring that combines the – uh, the the offensive uh, patterns of soccer, the scoring is football. You essentially throw a touchdown pass. The defense most likely most represents basketball, and the running style is hockey, short sprints, uh, followed by some resting, followed by some short, some some more sprints. The higher the level you go, the more sprinting, as in hockey. If you watch the NHL, they're always sprinting, and if you watch the AUDL, they're always sprinting. Um, and so that's really what it is. It's a running sport, and. Uh, it's organized uh, at its beginning without coaches and sort of a superstructure, and that's a great deal of the debate today about what direction the sport should go. You just said, if I watch the AUDL? American Ultimate Disc League. Yes. Well, that was the, the Spinners <laughs> versus Boston that we were— oh, That's the, okay. That's, yes, that, that's what that's that, the, that is. That is the professional league of which Connecticut had a team for, I think, one year, the Connecticut Constitution, before there was a territorial dispute involving teams in Boston and New York. Unfortunately, Connecticut— lost that team, but it was a great team and was uh, the site of the greatest catch ever by Anderson. Brian Anderson? I think you're correct on that, Dan. Yeah, that made a top 10. Top 10 ESPN ESPN. plays of the month. He's no Himalaya Meta, who is an actuary, by the way. Um, All right, so... um, 
Before I get any deeper into this, I should mention that we are doing this show today as we do about twice a month, um, on two Thursdays uh, of a month. We do something that we call Radio for the Deaf. It, it is, in fact, radio that is designed to be enjoyed and appreciated. Well, I mean, it's at least a joint, it's designed to be utilized anyway. I can't guarantee anyone's going to enjoy or appreciate it uh, by members of the deaf community. The way we do it is we have two fabulous uh, ASL interpreters who are here in studio with us. Uh, one of them is interpreting into ASL everything that I say. Uh, another is interpreting everything that uh, Danny and Dan and David and other guests will say. Uh, they are respectively Mary Sue Owens, my regular interpreter, uh, and Sarah D'Agostino, uh, who handles the guests. And uh, all of this can be seen on the Facebook page of The Colin McEnroe Show. So if you go to Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook, uh, you'll see a video feed that shows uh, this ASL interpretation. And we really want to do this uh, and ultimately get other radio stations across the country to do this so that what we think of, what we take for granted as radio can be enjoyed by an audience that ordinarily can't access it. Okay, so um, back to this conversation. So um, reading David Gessner's book, uh, Danny Har, um, I feel like I'm also reading a little bit of your story, right? This is a game... It, it, it may aspire ultimately to be a, a sport. I guess maybe it is a sport already. It might even eventually be an Olympic sport. But it's a game people seem to have picked up a lot in college, right? Well, we had a, we had a sort of a great uh, awakening of the sport in the era that was uh, when uh, Dave and I and I think Dan too were in college. Dan was, Dan was a tiny bit younger uh, it, where all of a sudden it, it ballooned from something like 10 teams in 1974 – Dave uh, it has the numbers to about 60 two years later, and then it really mushroomed after that in the early 80s, so that such that many, many, many colleges had teams, and that was that led to the club uh, 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 culture that still dominates today. It's not the pro game that dominates ultimate; it's the club game that dominates. Uh, and I would make a, one correction. I did live the life, except that the secret to my longevity in the sport and the reason that I'm still playing competitively today is that I was never all that good. At least I was never an elite player, which uh, I think Dave was. So there's the difference. Right. Well, I think we have David Gessner uh, on the line from the studio right now. Uh, I was going to make that same point that uh, David Gessner is an elite player, but maybe or was an elite player. Um, he's in senior senior status, and but even so, had other people that he looked up to. Sometimes, actually, even physically, had to look up to because they were so tall. This is, I mean, David Gessner. One thing that you do right away in this book is convince somebody like me that this is an incredibly demanding sport. Played at a fully competitive level, this is uh, aerobically up there with just about anything. Uh, if you, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. Well, first I want to emphatically say that was an elite player is the <laughs> <Okay>. correct <laughs> sentence. <laughs> I just played in great grandmasters for 50 and over, and I was even slower than I was at my slowest uh, a decade ago. So... Um, was but you know when I did play, uh, it was insane what we would do on a weekend. We'd get in there on a Saturday morning, and we'd play four or five games. Then if we made it to the quarters, we'd play on Sunday, play the semis, and if we were lucky, get to the finals. So it was like day two days of just running the whole time. And you're running in you know it's kind of a soccer style running, but it's also sprinting and bursting. And so we would laugh at like the pros who would say, oh, I'm tired because I had a game yesterday, you know, because we were just piling the games on. And I just went to see the pros play in Montreal last weekend. And boy, if you don't think it's athletic, just go out and watch those guys for half an hour. 
It's crazy. So, David, I sense a tension here, and let me let me explain it as best I can, and then maybe you can speak to it. And the tension that I sense, in, and it's in your book, and it's in the conversation that we're having right now, but is that on the one hand, there there are an awful lot of people who play this game who realize that it's demanding, it's challenging, uh, it, it's aerobically uh, exhausting, even compared to something like soccer, uh, and um, and that it certainly deserves. The, the status of a sport and a sport that would be taken seriously and maybe even covered on the sports pages of newspapers right. and, and carried on television. On the other hand, its wellsprings are, are a little bit in this kind of utopian world that, that in many respects was an implicit rejection of everything about other kinds of organized, <laughs> exalted sports, right? That there were... There right. Were, anyway, why don't you take... take you're better at explaining I'm gonna, this I'm going to try to parse this out in two different ways. Okay. One is that Utopian's a little wrong for me. It's like anarchy more than utopia because, you know, I say in the book, it isn't it really a hippie sport the way they're saying it. When Joel Silver, and I don't know if you guys have covered this already. We haven't got to Joel Silver yet, no. Well, the movie producer who later would give us, you know, Lethal Weapon and Xanandu and um, The Matrix, when he took the game from Northfield Mount Hermon Prep School and this rudimentary version of the game and brought it back to Columbia – he was already doing it as kind of a lark when he made it a varsity sport at Columbia. He was calling the pull, the kickoff. He had just seen Thunderball with James Bond, the James Bond movie, where there was a skeet shooting scene. So it would be, and that would be, you know, pull. So that's where pull comes from. And there were jokes in the rules about, you know, we will play until one player dies. So it was, it was from the beginning, it was more like Mad Magazine than it was Hippy Dippy. So that beginning made fun of authority. So even as recently as three years ago, when ESPN was filming the national finals, the crowd chanted, not a real sport. (laughs) So there's this kind of like... But they chanted chanted that lovingly, right? Lovingly. They were Frisbee players who were were chanting that. So there's this self-mockery. And as I say, there's a Rodney Dangerfield element to the sport because you're always explaining. You're always saying... Oh, you know, people are always saying to you, is that the thing you do with dogs? Right. And I was away for the game, from the game for 20 years and came back, and I was just doing a reading in Portland, Oregon, and I had five or six Uber drivers, and of those, only one knew what ultimate was. Mm-hmm. So there's always a defensiveness about the sport. There's always like, I'm explaining it, or, you know, I re- once broke my wrist and told the doctor how I did it, and he laughed out loud at me. So, <laughs> so, so you're coming at it from this place No, it's not tiddlywinks. No, it's not hula hoops um, from the beginning. And I noticed, having been away for two decades, that that's still there. As real as the athletes are, as pro as they are, as strong as they are, there's still that aspect of like having to explain what you're doing. Mm. So uh, David, uh, Danny Haar, uh, Connecticut uh, ultimate uh, legend, is also here with us today. <laughs> and um, and I can tell you you want to talk about this. I don't know. You've got something you want to say. Well, well the, go ahead and say it. And then I'll, well, I'll press first of all, we're all legends in our own mind in right. this sport. And the, yes. the older we are, the better we were. Uh, so the, and the, the, the drunker the, we are, the, right. the better we were. The, exactly. <laughs> the divide that I see is 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 not so much between – the, the the style of sport that it is, but it's definitely a sport. It's a rigorous, highly articulated sport. The question I see is where is the sport going? And right. should it become more codified and directed like, say, uh, lacrosse and rugby? Those are the sports that ultimate when yeah, yeah. the organizers in ultimate look at and say, we want to be like lacrosse and rugby in terms of their superstructure. Right. And, and let, me, then, let me just exactly. press on that a little bit, uh, Danny, so, yeah. so the people are clear about what you're talking about. My sense is 
uh, Danny, that the, from the point of view of the ultimate purists, maybe the people who were around at or near the beginning, there's this sense that every time you add anything that resembles structure, whether it's a ref, you know, or I don't know, jerseys with numbers or, you know, anything, right. anything like that, you are diluting and, and uh, maybe despoiling a little bit uh, of that pure moment of paradise when this game was played a certain way. Some of the old timers want to see that progression and some don't. I would say overall there probably is a greater correlation to the older players who don't want to see that progression. And I'm in the camp that doesn't want anything to do with the Olympics or the Olympic movement and the entire corruption of international sport. Why does Ultimate need that? It doesn't. And other people probably... Uh, both Dan and Dave will say, no, no, that's going to be great for the sport. Well, I want to ask Dan O'Connor about this. So once again, president and CEO of the Frisbee Pie Company in Bridgeport. Uh, so the only actual businessman among us. Uh, that's right. <laughs> so, well, yeah, from a business perspective, can, can this thing be something other than what it is now? I believe, and to David's points and also Danny's, uh, the growth of the sport, I think, reflects the popularity. And again, whether it's grassroots, hey, we all aspire to the NFL, but with very, you know, the viewership of what drives that. In reality, participation and other things are declining. Think about concussions. Think about other things that are going on in sports overall. So I don't see it necessarily aspirationally. The Olympics and being there is a huge opportunity. But the real spirit of the game and what I do every day and pretty much every day of my life, which I'm so fortunate, I'm playing ultimate Frisbee. I've been playing for over 30 years, over 40, let's call it what it is. So I'm uh, in Danny and uh, David's... Uh, age bracket and still competing. So I love it, but I'm also competing now. And I say compete because we're out there having fun in the competition around it with my friends and their their siblings or their children, I should say. So we're out there running around. So it's generational. It's exciting. There's so much activity going on. So I think you can achieve both is my, my take on it. So David Gesson, first of all, explain what is the status of Ultimate or Ultimate Frisbee vis-a-vis the Olympics? I think in your book you say it's at a contender. I, I don't even know the rankings, the steps that you have to go up to before you, you, know, you get to be a medal sport in, in the Olympics. But it's somewhere in that continuum, right? Is it okay if I answer this like a politician and wend my way back to the final answer? Because I want to respond to you, Danny's comment it's first. Called, it's called a pivot. Which, yes, you can, yes you can so I'm going to pivot. And say that the histor- historically, you know, you had in the early 70s, you had Rutgers in their team bus and with their scoreboard going to play Tufts. And they had numbers on their shirt. So Tufts decided to ha- we're all wear number threes as their response, like their mm-hmm. screw you kind of response to the official way of Rutgers. Then you have Jose Cuervo coming in and having had success with beach volleyball. And they wanted people to wear numbers and not smoke joints on the sideline. And then they foolishly, at the end of the tournament, the first one they ran, opened the bar for an hour for free tequila. And Frisbee players were crawling over to get the tequila, and they rolled their eyes and said, these guys aren't ready for prime time. And my friend D. Rambeau, who ran the tournament, said, if we can't sell this to a tequila company, who can we sell it to? So that's the history. There's always been push forward, pull back. I guess what I don't see is why you can't have 99% of ultimate be old, wild, you know, fun, and have 1% be like the pro game I watched this weekend where they had refs and no arguments and you know and be you know I don't know that we have to having said that I think what's going on with the Olympics right now to pivot back mm-hmm. is we are contorting the game a little I hear that it's going to be maybe beach beach ultimate which is five players not seven co-ed ultimate trying to do anything we can kind of desperately 
to get into the Olympics. And that does not seem like my idea of spirit of the game, which is we're going to do whatever the hell we want. All right. And what about countries that don't have nerds? No, I'm just kidding. That slipped No, out. there's there's actually a surprising <laughs> amount of nerd countries out there. Japan's very good. Costa Rica has a team now. There's Sweden. you know, Sweden's good. You know, there's a lot of so, there's a lot of nerd countries. So Danny Harris, you're worried <laughs> that like if it became an Olympic sport, then Russia would start like worrying about oxygen uptake and and putting turtle <laughs> glands inside uh, nerds. We're or, already I mean, doing that. Yeah, but but not camp. but not well, the ultimate, right? For, yeah. First of all, to pivot on the pivot, I I, I want to give a a a, a, a left brain. <laughs> Let's answer. just keep pivoting just pivot. and call well, traveling we do a lot on of pivoting. Each other. I kind of way, knew this was going to happen. In ultimate, the, in <laughs> I guess ultimate, I asked for it. In ultimate, the player who's holding the disc has to, in fact, pivot and can't yeah, yes. run with the disc. Um, exactly. But the, in answer to your original question, the uh, the International Olympic Committee has recognized ultimate as a sport, and it has yet to be scheduled as a sport in competition. The hope is 24 in, I believe. Well, uh, actually, I believe, and this is my take on it, I've heard uh, the short list for 22. 24, 24 right. is a possibility, but I'm excited, and the reason why I say it, 2028, Los Angeles. Los Angeles, right. Yeah. So right. I'm personally, 11 years out, we'll be at that age bracket where we can really enjoy ourselves. Some so. of us will still be alive. <laughs> That's my plan, exactly. <laughs> so the, the heroes that we were or are, you know, those right. that are but in the sport are still going to be, a, a, and I believe that could be a great opportunity. But I, Danny, you I really don't think, like this idea. I, no, I do. I don't. I still think that Ultimate had its apogee in the fields by the Charles River and under the 59th Street, now Ed Koch Bridge, uh, oh, yeah. where the great teams came of age in the 80s. And and, and what Giants I'm saying about— the earth. What I'm saying—what's that? Giants roamed the earth. Exactly. And what I'm saying about about the Olympics is I don't think that the sport should be any less of an athletic, hardcore pursuit. And I do think we are attracting now great, great athletes who would have pushed us out, at least speaking for myself, <laughs> in the 80s from the, what was then the highest level of the sport. We're getting the, these great, great players like NBA-style you know, bodies that are playing, starting, just starting right now. Uh, and so I'm not against the athleticization of the sport further. I'm against the corruption of international sports culture that says we'll pay you X if you do Y under the table. And there's no way to stop that. I don't care how many indictments they get in the IOC. Money changes everything. Hey, as long as you're mentioning NBA bodies, let me bring up another uh, tripwire or third rail. Or me. Uh, this is probably my own blind prejudice about Ultimate, of which I confess to having lots but I was think of it as like the whitest thing ever. <laughs> I mean, I think it's actually listed in that book, like things <laughs> yeah. white people do. Yeah. It's getting less so. And you, and if you want to watch Sports Center and see Jakeem, the uh, the guy, he played for Atlanta last year. I mean, it's 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 pretty it's pretty exciting. And you can imagine if it wasn't the whitest sport ever, if you had an NBA infusion, you know, from uh, it's to me the thing that would keep the game wild is the physics of the disc, the hovering. That's what leads to the diving. That what's lead, that's what leads to like sports center style plays, the way it waits for you and the way it sits up there at like 10 feet in the air. And so if it really was lucrative, you'd have the best jumpers, the best athletes going up and snacking that thing from and and it's a thrilling moment. I've I got mean, the I've got it, the clip uh, right of now. The, it's a pretty white moment, but uh, it could it could actually, expand. No, actually, in nineteen eighty three, I was on the Hartford uh, club team called the Tourists, and we yep. joined forces with a 
an all-black team from Waterbury called The Mob. The Mob. The Mob. Sure. The Mob. Yep. And, right. and we played tournaments. And actually, we played in the Ultimate Affair. I think we might have beaten you guys, the hostages. I'm not <laughs> sure. I think we beat you guys. But it was a I'm great— I'm sure you tell stories about it to this day. We think we beat you, yes. <laughs> yes. But, it, but all kidding aside, that had been an all-black team, and we formed a team yep. called the NAS that was, that was uh, fully integrated. All right. For those of you still listening, uh, we're going to take yep. a little break here. Uh, <laughs> We're going to come back. We've got to get uh, Dan O'Connor to talk a little bit more about the history, the complicated and very Connecticut-centric history of the Frisbee itself. On top of a Frisbee, as big as a plane. I got the ultimate Frisbee. It does phenomenal things. It can fly anywhere when it glides through the air. It doesn't even need wings. Hey, you're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show from August 31st of 2017. Back. We are back. Very hard to control Ultimate Frisbee people. They do whatever they want to do. Uh, we're talking about the world of the Frisbee, the dark secret world of the Frisbee, uh, with David Gessner, uh, whose book, Boy, a Frisbee Needs Certain Things, it probably needs a book like this one. It really is, uh, all kidding aside, a terrifically written book, uh, Ultimate Frisbee. Uh, excuse me. The book is called Ultimate Glory, Frisbee Obsession and My Wild Youth. Uh, it's a lot of fun to read even for somebody like me who mainly makes fun of people like Dan Hart. Um, and uh, it, it is, it's a great sports book. So uh, he's on with us. Uh, Danny Har, columnist for the Hartford Current and Connecticut uh, Frisbee legend, uh, is here with us. And also in studio with us is Dan O'Connor, who's president and CEO of the Frisbee Pie Company in Bridgeport. So now, now we have to go back even further in time than Joel Silver, further in time uh, to the very origins of the Frisbee. So I'm holding in my hand one of Dan Har's 8,000 plastic flying discs that, you know, if you wrap them together, they sound like this. Um, but I'm also holding here a couple of the things that's preceded those things, and they sound like this. So, uh, Dan O'Connor, I'm going to let you take over the story. I've heard all kinds of legends, and I think there's a, some, maybe even some disagreement about exactly what happened. But as far as you know, how did this whole thing get going? Well, Colin, thank you again for uh, the intro. I uh, really, if you think about rolling back the time frame, you're thinking 1871. So, mm -hmm. U.S. 1871, post-Civil War, a lot of things going on. We've got a lot of activity a young man named William Joseph Frisbee, William Russell Frisbee, excuse me, his son was Joseph, but William Russell Frisbee left along the shoreline, Brantford, Connecticut, and moved from what was Old's Bakery to Bridgeport, Connecticut. So this is 1871, August, and he moved into a small fat bakery, and it was called the Frisbee Pie Bakery in 1871. The name, the company, grew as pies and Local bakeries grew throughout the area through the early 1900s. Upon his passing in about 1902, 1903, his son Joseph took over. Joseph ran a company throughout primarily the Northeast, and I speak Connecticut, into Rhode Island, and that includes Hartford and Bridgeport specifically in those areas and up to Poughkeepsie, New York. So a lot of coverage within the New England region, and sales were very strong. They continued to be very strong, and to your point, what was going on at the same time with tossing of tins. So the actual tins were being tossed, cookie tins, pie tins as we see in front and what you're sharing with the audience today. Those were used, 
But what rose to the top was Frisbee, the name Frisbee and the Frisbee pie tins. The reason being is, as we experimented a little earlier, they flew quite well. But also the name resonated. So on the college campuses, they would throw it. And I assimilate it to in the vernacular today of yelling for when a golf ball is coming your way. At the time, those that were throwing, it was heading in someone's direction. They would yell Frisbee. So the name stuck. And it stuck about the participation in the throwing of the tins, which was becoming very popular. And when you look historically, there were games that were created using pie tins and other flying tins, cookie lids, and so forth. But that aside, the name stuck. Well, Dan, say you say universities. Yes. Um, I, and I hold no brief for this, but I did attend what my friend Alex Beam calls America's second greatest university. <laughs> and there is this idea that Yale in particular has some claim on this whole idea of throwing these tins around. How does that sit with you? Well, I would say it's open for conversation. I don't think there's any uh, you know, direct I would say geographical or specific location, but I would almost tip my hat to uh, Yale. I think that, yeah. Which is why Colin has, if he had come just a few years later at Yale, there's almost (laughs) no doubt that he would have been an ultimate player given the the, the cultural touchstones. I was there in 1869 before this whole thing really started (laughs) took off. So, so, So to that said, I think Yale giving credit, but I also give credit to some of the workers at the plant who initially were throwing them around. And it started from that location and built out. That's typically the way Yale does everything. Ordinary working people get this thing started, and then somebody at Yale grabs it and licenses it, and that's the end of it. So just very quickly here, because I don't want to lose track of this. Sure. You you sort of reactivated the pie company. Explain what you did with the pie company. Yes. So uh, long story short, with my passion for ultimate Frisbee and all Frisbee things, I had the opportunity not only from my experience, my professional experience of 30 years in sales and marketing, but also the, how would you say, early on finding out and hearing of the history and saying, hey, wouldn't this be a great opportunity to revisit and find out about the company, explore, make some contacts, and work from that point where I was able to actually work directly with the owner of the, 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 the name and acquire the licensing and distribution rights. So it's a, it's a wonderful situation, a wonderful partnership that's really grown not only today, uh, about eight, nine months into it, selling pies, but also sharing the story and the history with those that are uh, have an ear and want to hear about the great history of not only this great pie company, but also the sports that come with it. So David Gessner, to whatever degree uh, Ultimate Frisbee as a sport wants to come out from under the whatever kind of shadow it's been under for uh, all of its existence, how much of that has to do with the story? I mean, do you think how much of it has to do with the story that Dan O'Connor just told? In other words, a baseball or a basketball or a football didn't used right. to be something else. Um, yes. It's not a repurposed thing. It was invented to play the sport. It, and a baseball and a basketball and a football, uh, right. they claim anyway not to be sort of child's toys. There's a way in which the exactly. Frisbee, because of the name, I don't know. Yeah, you take it from there. Well, um, first of all, the word Frisbee, as I say in the book, it's like boing. It's just a word that's hard to take seriously, the, the way it sounds, mm. even if you didn't know what it meant, even if you didn't associate it with the closet in summers and throwing the little plastic thing. And then Joel Silver, out of, you know, again, out of kind of a joke impulse, putting the word ultimate in front of it. So you have the pretentious adjective followed by boing kind of word. And that really, I feel like we'd be in a little different place if it had been called field disc, you know, or something, right. you know, it's a disc, you yeah, know, it's a, a, like a ball. Now I'm fine with what, where we are, cause it's funnier and weirder and it was much better to write about it the way it came out. 
But I do feel like we weren't just apologizing for the thing itself but the name and the association with tiddlywinks and hula hoops and the, the, the toy aspect. Now, as, as I said before, the way it physically flew and, you know, I always take the opportunity to knock Yale down a notch or two. So Kenyon College had the oven mix po- uh, cake tin in the 40s and played a game called Ace Ball. So it was, you know, it was happening in a lot of different places, though Yale's the most famous place where, where we knew it started. But, you know, so that aspect of it, the toy aspect, the, you know, you're throwing a plate around, uh, they all kind of combine for that inferiority complex, which I, I shouldn't say it like, I think it's a horrible thing. I think it's part of the joy of the game is that you're playing something and throwing your life into something that others consider ridiculous. I write in the book about building muscles of nonconformity because you'd, you know, you'd win a national championship and people would go, huh? So there was, there was something about, you know, kind of uh, the epigraph for the book is Emerson's, whoso should be a man must be a nonconformist. So I like the weirdness of it, but it certainly makes it harder to, to sell to a normal person. Right. By the way, I should just say just in terms of uh, heroism, I do have on my Facebook page, as Danny will tell you, a clip of the great um, Himalaya Mitta catch uh, last year uh, in that game. So I can appreciate what, what these people do. But so Danny Har, let me put, have you put on one of your many other hats. You know, one thing that happens with sports is they get covered in newspapers to the extent that newspapers will still exist. You know, um, they may not make it to 2028 in the L.A. Olympics. But you know, there's a sports section in which I doubt any ultimate Frisbee has ever appeared. We're maybe, almost maybe. always in metro sections of newspapers <laughs> when we're in there. Almost one of you get shot in a park or something? Or? There, are, there, there, there are people in this world who accept ultimate as a full-fledged sport. Sports editors at newspapers in America are not among those people. But is that because they have a vested interest in thinking what a sport is? They have, in other words, a canon. They have a canonical understanding of what sports are. They're probably not – they're especially, especially not – I could probably go out in the newsroom and convince somebody that this is a sport more some easily. Of them, some of them are just starting to accept tennis, which Dave and I grew up playing competitively. <laughs> I think we have that in common. Uh, yeah. So no, that's not that's – but the other problem with the sport is that in order as, – as is evidenced in this – our show here today, anytime you talk about ultimate, first of all, we're the only sport ever that is not allowed to use its name. It's right. ultimate Frisbee, for crying out loud. That's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and second of all, every time you do an article in a newspaper, you have to sort of re-explain the sport. And so there are really only three or four types of ultimate stories out there. One right. is, hey, this is fast-growing. Another is, hey, I bet you didn't know how hard this is aerobically. Another is, hey, these are really like hippie roots. And another is, they argue right. a lot with each other. That was in the New York era with uh, yep. a, a fellow yeah, don't named Don't forget Kenny Spirit Dodd. of the Game. Oh, Spirit, Spirit of the I forgot game. about Spirit sure. of the Game. Yes, yes, Spirit yeah. of the Game. Yeah. And Spirit of the Game, once again, just so we understand what we're talking about. And David, that's what we were talking about before, this notion yeah. that it is somewhat anarchical, that it enjoys yeah. its anarchical qualities. Yeah, I, I'm glad I missed that discussion because <laughs> I've had it too many times. During my era, which was super competitive, you know, Reagan, Greta's good era, the people who really used spirit of the game to their advantage were the hyper-competitive teams, and this was making your own calls. And as I say in the book, I played enough pickup basketball to know what happens when you make your own calls. It devolves quickly into an argument. So this kind of this kind of perfectionist notion led to its opposite during my era. I'm, I think it's gotten better currently, in part because of the use of uh, smartphones and filming things. You're less likely to be a jerk. If you're on 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 film, so, but in our era, people would really use it to to win. 
uh, which was too bad. I should point out that a uh, longtime sports writer, uh, Steve Russian, who's also a longtime friend of this show, uh, objects to ultimate frisbee. He thinks it should be called penultimate frisbee. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he also objects to just ultimate. He says uh, if you just call it ultimate, it places itself at the apex of all human endeavors, better than <laughs> sex, art, or spaghetti bolognese. Uh, for a pair, for a sport played without balls, ultimately, ultimate certainly has a pair. Uh, writes, uh, writes Steve. So. Um, the other question that I have, and Danny, I'll start you out with this one. You know, when I am often walking through the park and I see, see some people casually playing ultimate frisbee, and I often note that it's co-ed. Although, what I really mean by co-ed is that there's 13 dudes and one girl. Um, is 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 this? I mean, I don't know. Is there since, since I just mentioned Steve Russian, are there Rebecca Lobos of ultimate frisbee? Uh, yes, Suzanne Fields is the great. Uh, well, if there's I, only one, it doesn't count. Well, no, she was she was one, and there are others. Okay. Uh, and Dave and can there talk, are many now. Dave can talk about it at, at greater length. But the answer is yes, there are. And the great uh, I mentioned one name who was a pioneer uh, and a great great player um, at the highest level. Ultimate is played co-ed because the structure of the sport, almost unlike any other sport I can think of, is, is that you can have players of varying ability on the same field at the same time as long as they're covering each other. So, that, for example, we had John Corber, who may be uh, out there listening today. He's a great player in Connecticut and was the coach and uh, captain of the Connecticut Constitution professional team playing in our summer league with beginners. Uh, and, uh, you know, somebody covered, covered John Corber, who was a professional player. I didn't. And uh, other people covered the people of their level. So that happens. And, yes, the women's game has been slower to develop, but at this point is uh, probably growing faster, is growing faster, and has some great, great players. Hey, Dan O'Connor, when Danny or David mentions professional, what do they, what do they mean? I mean, I, I assume we're not talking about, like, $7 million contracts and stuff like that, professional ultimate. It is not $7 million, I can assure you that, but it is, uh, I believe it's a stipend, it's tournament fees, yeah. it's travel expenses. Yeah. And I think David Gessner, back in the 80s, would have clamored for that because the expenses and the carrying of a team or an individual, for all those years that David, myself, and Danny have been playing, we've been picking up the dime the whole way along that I'm aware of. I don't want to speak for everybody, but it was basically no self- No one's ever paid me to play, no. <laughs> exactly. So with that said, I think the professionalism is really covering- Again, a stipend, there's tryouts, there's time commitments, there's travel time. So I believe that is covered and then some. Do, are they making a living? I believe it's a, let's call it a second job, <laughs> second career, yeah. but a true passion. Oh, and that's David, what gets them the, out the highest, The highest paid player right now, uh, last year was Bo Kittredge, who made around 50000 And that was an astounding amount for Ultimate. As I like to say during my book tour, I'm still the highest paid ultimate player <laughs> based on the book. Advanced, yeah. the book. Yeah, that's all. But um, he, you know, he's an extraordinary athlete. I just did a piece on him for Outside Magazine. 6'4", runs a you know, 47 second 400, a 4440, has done the football com- combines and crushed them. So, but he's making a pittance compared to pro sports, obviously. And, you know, I mean, somebody alluded to this. I think it might have been you, Dan O'Connor. But there's, there's a way in which... Many of the sports that we've grown up loving as spectators do seem incredibly compromised now. I mean, the football season starts in eight or nine days. The NFL season starts, and I'm as happy, happy about that and excited about the Green Bay Packers as it possibly could be. But I also, it's now tinctured with this sense that there's something very wrong with all this, um, and, and and certainly just the infusion of money everywhere else, and the way colleges make insane 
amounts of money off their athletes uh, and and coaches, you know, do make like seven, eight million dollars a year and the athletes get nothing. There's all kinds of ways. And Danny, maybe I'll start this out with you as the business reporter here. There's ways in which uh, our ch- our childhood games have been uh, it's uh, it's a commonplace to say this they've been corrupted by money i mean maybe that's the argument for this oddly sort of misfit and fame resistant game i don't think there's any question about it money and structure and what one of the effects of the money and structure ironically is that the personality of the players and the captains doesn't come through nearly as much as it does in ultimate where there there are no adults in the room it's just us mm-hmm. and so for for example one of the characters two of the characters in David's book uh, arguably other than himself the lead characters Steve Mooney of Boston and Kenny Dobbins of New York two very very different clashing type personality types Steve Mooney, I was actually his first captain, David, which you may not know. There was a period when Steve Mooney did not know how to throw a forehand, and I witnessed that. Uh, It didn't last long. He was able to exert the type of leadership that led him to be a great champion for 25 years, 20 years, uh, over the period of six different teams because there was no superstructure in the sport. He was it. He was he was exerting great leadership. Same thing with Kenny Dobbins in New York, a different type of leadership, a much more aggressive bulldog, angry style, but really coming through in their personalities. And that comes through in the book. And I think that comes through in part because there is no structure money over the sport. All right. You know what? Uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody who's participated in this uh, fine conversation. I've got one last question I've got to ask Dan O'Connor. So where can we get Frisbee pies now? If we just want to eat the pies, we don't want to play the game. Uh, how does that work? Well, Colin, thanks uh, again. I mean, you this, brought some pies here. I, That's I, where I'm going to get yep, my pies. I'm very fortunate. The rest I, of these people. I brought some along for the uh, studio yeah. and some other uh, Chowskis. But with that said, what's great about it is I build out the business, as I mentioned, seven, eight months, nine months into it. The product is currently available, that being the pies. They mm. come in three flavors. We have apple, blueberry, and cherry. They're in four-inch snack pies right now. Mm-hmm. I'm rolling out a line coming into the fall, which will be the eight-inch, which will be a more traditional Frisbee pie that we're used to and have seen throwing around. But with that said, Colin, these are available today. It's Stu Leonard's mm. across right down the road yeah. in Newington, as well as across the others throughout Connecticut. Yeah as well as Restaurant Depot, Mm -hmm. which is stocking them in the orange location and will be moving to the other stores uh, shortly within the Connecticut area. And lastly, we have a distributor, which is Wade's Dairy, which is supplying a lot of the local delis, Mm -hmm. restaurants, and caterers. So it's Wade's Dairy for local delivery and the other two, as I mentioned, for pickup and purchase. Uh, you got to get into Highland Park. They're made for Highland Park. Uh, it's a product. I used to, of course, uh, my father and I founded Sarah Whitten Hooker Pies, and we certainly sold a lot of them there at Highland Park. Uh, all right. So this has been a great conversation, or or not, or we could maybe have no listeners left. I don't care either way. I'm that committed. Uh, David Gessner is the author of Ultimate Glory, Frisbee, you Obsession, and My Wild Youth. Please uh, d- uh, take a look at this book. It really will help you understand uh, one of your friends in your life, like if one of your friends is Danny Har or Dave Morad or Tim Helmecki. Um, uh, also, Danny Har, columnist for the Hartford Current, uh, a regular on many of our shows here, uh, and Dan O'Connor, the president and CEO of the recently mentioned Frisbee Pie Company in Bridgeport. We're going to take a break, and we're going to talk about Danny Har's next sport, sport uh, pickleball. pickleball. Pickleball Ragnarok, the big one. Let's do some sailing.
Hey, you're listening to a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show from August 31st of 2017. This is amazing timing, but breaking news in the sports world. One of the biggest stars in Major League Ultimate Frisbee was disqualified today after he did not test positive for pot. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McFrisbee and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tim Helmecki. And now, back to Colin. <laughs> Danny Hart just did something funny. Uh, all right, so... Well, you got to admit it isn't fair if everybody else is high and somebody isn't. That gives them an unfair advantage at Ultimate Frisbee. But we're, first of all, we're not going to talk about Ultimate Frisbee anymore. Uh, we're talking about a different sport. And Patrick Fisher, who we're about to talk to, uh, Patrick, I have to tell you something. These guys who've been talking about Ultimate Frisbee for the last 38 minutes, uh, as we went into break, they went, what, you really going to talk about pickleball? What, pickleball? You're going to talk about pickleball? <laughs> what is pickleball? Who even knows what that is? <laughs> I'm thinking, you just talked about Ultimate Frisbee for 38 minutes. All right. So uh, pickleball is uh, a sport that we've actually talked about about five years ago on this show. And so, Patrick, uh, maybe we should say that you're executive director of Connecticut Sports Management Group. And maybe you can describe uh, briefly for people what pickleball is. Sure, absolutely. And I appreciate you guys having us on. Um, Pickleball is the fastest growing sport in America, if you can believe it or not. Uh, It's a combination of uh, tennis, badminton, and ping pong. Um, it's played indoors or outdoors. Uh, court size is uh, kind of relative to a badminton court. Um, the net's a little lower than a tennis net, um, and it's played with a paddle um, and then a ball that's similar to a wiffle ball, um, but it's got circular holes all over it. Um, it's fast pace. Um, baby boomers are the largest population right now that's actually playing. They actually represent about 65% of that um, population that plays pickleball. You know, when you say baby boomers, well, I'm a baby boomer. I'm 62. My knees hurt. I mean, there's a little bit of a component to that, right, to pickleball. It's like maybe if there's certain sports that I've had to say goodbye to, but I could probably continue to play pickleball. Absolutely. Um, you know, it is the sport of Florida. Uh, if you know anything about the villages, um, they don't have enough courts right now to accommodate the growth of this sport and the number of people that want to play. Um, you know, all the park and rec, um, you know, organizations throughout the state of Connecticut are scrambling to create programs because there's been such a desire um, for people to be able to play and find an area or a court or indoors or outdoors to be able to provide for that need. Um, uh, this sounds like a joke, uh, but I'm told it's not. Um, apparently, this is a very popular sport at nudist resorts. I don't know if that's anything you're aware of. <laughs> if you uh, actually Google pickleball and look in the image sections when you come up to Google, you'll see some interesting photos. There. Yeah, I think I'm not going to do that then. Um, <laughs> Patrick, I think uh, Danny Har and Dan O'Connor are looking at one of those pictures that you so infelicitously uh, <laughs> guided people to right now. They're passing a phone back and forth. That's a bad sign. All right. I have to thank uh, everybody who helped out with today. Show. We're all a little exhausted here because last night we did a we taped a, a show for the future at the Copper Beach Institute with just incredible musicians and it was really a lot of fun. But we're a little tired here today. Uh, but this has been a fun topic to talk about uh, to our eleven or twelve remaining listeners. Anyway, thanks to everybody, especially Jonathan McPickle and uh, Kyone Wolf. Everybody run, 
I'm filing a formal protest against your team. Uh, about what? One of your players has a dog. He's not a dog. He looks like a dog, and he's very sensitive about it. Can you lower your voice? Sure, I can talk softer. No, 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 no. Actually, lower your voice. He, he can hear high-pitched noises really well. Uh, case closed. <laughs>